Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Let's just say that you decide to take an 11-hour plane ride from the familiar suburban safety of your North American home to the heart of the Amazon rainforest in Peru to sample an accurate tea brewed by a local medicine man or woman you'd never met before and served on a dirt floor that promises to heal you with astonishing efficiency and provide a direct connection to the divine. How did you get to this fork in the road moment? What are you really looking for? What is the cause of the emptiness that can drive you so far from home to find your true self? Psychedelics arrived in the popular zeitgeist at a time when it seemed that the secular materialist worldview had a lock on the critically minded imagination. First LSD, then psilocybin mushrooms, and more recently, the DMT-infused drink ayahuasca announced themselves as vehicles for transcendence for people in a society that had given up on the notion that transcendence was a state worth pursuing. Whether it was a connection to aliens, or access to beings in other dimensions, or an experience of what monotheistic lineages referred to as God, somehow these substances opened a doorway to the ineffable. For those of us who have been habitually trapped inside the conventional secular worldview, psychedelics take a jackhammer to the concrete foundations of our ignorance, break up the ground of our certainty, and create space for the observations and questions that nurture us. This path to the Amazon was paved, in the minds of many, by the brothers McKenna, Terence and Dennis. Their accounts of their journey to La Chirera in search of a powerful DMT-based psychedelic, most famously told in Terence's book True Hallucinations, is the origin story of the plant medicine truth seeker, Dennis's exploration of this territory dates back a half-century, and he's widely regarded as among its most knowledgeable cartographers. In today's episode, we discuss the kinds of questions that come up when working with entheogens becomes an important part of your life. What's the difference between a plant psychedelic and a chemical? How do you choose a shaman? What role does integration play following a plant medicine journey? Are the entities you encounter under the influence real? What is actually going on when you trip? One of the things I appreciate about Dennis is how comfortable he is that these questions may not have definitive answers. Rather, the way you pursue the questions themselves and leave yourself open to the ambiguities revealed in the process may provide a more accurate understanding than any hard and fast certainty would. Of course, one of the beauties of the psychedelic experience is how it blasts away your sense of certainty. Dennis McKenna is an American ethnopharmacologist, research pharmacognosist, lecturer, and author. He is a founding board member and director of ethnopharmacology at the Hefner Research Institute, a nonprofit organization concerned with the investigation of the potential therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines. He's an adjunct professor at the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. McKenna's research led to the development of natural products for the Aveda Corporation, as well as greater awareness of natural products and medicines more broadly. 
He has authored or co-authored over 50 peer-reviewed scientific papers and written books, including The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, My Life with Terence McKenna, and co-author of The Invisible Landscape with his brother Terence. He is also on the advisory board of the Solterra Healing Center in Costa Rica, where he leads retreats. A tireless advocate for thoughtful psychedelic awareness, you can find him in the coming weeks at the following events. On Thursday, September 27th, he's at the Assemblage John Street in New York City, celebrating the launch of the book DMT Dialogues, Encounters with the Spirit Molecule, of which he is a contributing author. On Saturday, September 29th, he'll be at the Visionary Salon, DMT and Dialogues with the Other, at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in Wappingers Falls, New York. From October 1st to October 7th, he'll be at the Psychedelic Film and Music Festival in New York City, which he helped to curate. On October 27th, he'll be at the Portland Society 2018 Conference in Oregon. And from November 11th to 18th, he's helping to lead a retreat at Solterra Healing Center in Costa Rica. You can find out more on Dennis McKenna's Facebook events page. As we discuss, it seems that no psychedelic symposium is complete without the presence of Dennis McKenna. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. 
at the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Dennis, it seems like whenever somebody wants to do a big psychedelic event, you get invited. Like, you're the go-to guy. It seems so. It seems so. Whether it's a conference in Estonia or something happening in British Columbia or a private gathering to discuss DMT visions and entities in a castle outside of London, the Tearingham Institute, or it's, you know, some other in a long line of global psychedelic events that are now taking place. If your presence can somehow be arranged at that event, it becomes this powerful legitimizing force for the visionary grounding, if that you can make that oxymoron work, of what they're trying, you know, what, what you would like to invoke, what people would like to invoke through their work of psychedelics, work with psychedelics, that they could, to have you there is, um, you know, an important uh, and powerful statement. And so your calendar goes insane. You're making me think, Ken, I ought to start charging more money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, maybe you should. Because for all this running around of all of those events, there's only one, the retreat, that actually pays something. But some of these things are hard to pass up because they're intrinsically interesting, you know. Though they're intrinsically interesting. What I have to ask, because you've now seen so much that's going on in the global psychedelic movement for so many years, what is it that makes them interesting now? What are the events that are, the events that are happening that you're going to, what's the, the intrinsic interest for you that keeps you engaged with it? Obviously, the subject is intrinsically interesting, and it's interesting to... You know, be a participant in this global, really, it's a global cultural shift involving the rediscovery of plant medicines. And it, it has never lost interest for me. It's also, I think we're at a time when, well, it's been going on for a while. Certainly Michael Pollan's recent book was a catalyst, kind of addressed to the non-psychedelic people that are interested but maybe you know they want to know more and it's a good introduction to that he writes very well and, and i don't know if you've read his book i dove into it a bit is it how to know your mind that's the title how to change your mind how to change your mind that's it right yeah yeah and he's he's gonna be at uh horizons this october yeah you know it's on the new york times bestseller list ever since it was published in in July, I believe. Now it's dropped off, but it was in fourth place. It was in first place for a while. And it's an interesting book. I mean, Michael Pollan's writing is excellent, and I've admired his work writing about other plants, the botany of desire, the omnivore dilemma. All of these things really resonate with me. I like this book, Changing Your Mind. It, it's He sort of takes the role on it's a little bit disingenuous in a way. He takes on the role of being sort of the pilgrim in a strange land. It's like, you know, I'm basically a materialist. I don't know anything about this stuff, but I'm, you know, this is my perspective. 
it's not quite like that. He does admit that he took mushrooms when he was in college and, you know, a few times, but it was recreational for him. There was no focus on the, you know, sort of significance of his early experiences. So he came after years, years later, then when he went to write the book, he came to it from, you know, obviously a more mature man and just from a different perspective. So I think that book and what it represents in the culture is a, a sign of just how much things have changed, even in the last yes. three or four years. Yes, it, it seems to be accelerating, you know, and, and that's good because everything else is accelerating too. Everything bad is accelerating too. And, you know, what I have said many times, probably in previous uh, Evolver podcasts and really everywhere I go, you know, I really have only one shtick. And the shtick is that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and plant medicines are the only thing that they say because they are catalysts for a shift in global consciousness. And this is what is required if we're going to save ourselves. It may already be too late. But, you know, I don't believe that if, you know, anything is served by, by just giving in to despair. And we have never had, I mean, these psychedelics are the tools that we have for changing people's perception about not only about psychedelics that's not the that's not the main thing but re-understanding our relationship to nature this is the task before us we have to wake up to what we're doing to the planet and we're doing it faster and faster and then wise up you know try to figure out what we can do about this and one thing we can do I mean, there are many things potentially we can do, but one thing we can do is those of us in the plant medicine community can try to spread the word and try to bring other people to these experiences, particularly people with influence who can actually affect change on a global scale. Well, that's happening. I mean, you can see, I mean, I'm sure you, you, you hear the same kinds of stories I hear about CEOs yeah, going off to Peru yeah. in groups, in bunches, right. and having transformative experiences or, you know, that kind of, you know, very deliberate introduction of these uh, mystery school, you know, experiences to people from the corporate or political world who would not have access or hadn't even shown much curiosity before, and it can have quite an effect. Yeah, it is happening, and and this is very encouraging that these cultural iconic figures, corporate CEOs who are, you know, concerned about, well, you know, nothing less than the existence, the persistence and, and survival of life on Earth. It's great that these people are going to South America and having these experiences. The question is, what do they do with that experience afterwards? Well, honestly, that's the question for everybody. Because you can have these experiences as soon as you, you know, you can have your awakening and you can have a series of great awakening experiences and you can go from having a relatively materialist worldview to recognizing that there's way more going on than that. But then what? What do you do with that? How do you bring that into your life? How do you integrate? 
In the work that you do in Peru or in Costa Rica, when you're leading or working with a group that being where there's a shaman leading a ceremony, how do you bring an integration piece to that? How do you help people the day after, the week after, the month after, help move their revelation into something they, that is actionable for them in their real life? Right. Well, there are different approaches to it. Every retreat center, every group that does this has a different a different approach. This is one of the things I liked about Salterra. They actually emphasize integration quite a bit. I mean, they provide a lot of information on the in the run up before you ever even drink ayahuasca. They provide information. They help educate people as to what to expect and how to how to approach the experience and then following the experience in a more or less a group discussion setting. Everyone gets to share what they want to about their experience. And I think that's an essential uh, component. You know, um, various centers have different numbers of sessions. Solterra happens to do about four and they do it inside of a week, which is a little bit compressed. On the other hand, it fits into busy people's schedules. So there's before, there's a process of education and discussion before. So people are well grounded knowing what to expect. And then when they have their experience, they and and the philosophy I agree with, they're, you know, we're not here to tell people what they're supposed to think. We're here to create a safe set and setting so they can have the experience and, and make of it what they will, because every person's psychedelic experience is unique, but we can help them sort of interpret it. I mean, there's no dogma, there's no right and wrong way to do it, but often these things can be quite confusing. So a lot of what a good shaman can do or a good therapist can do is help people get clarity about what happened to them. Well, you know, but it t- sometimes it takes more than a week or two after the ceremony for things to emerge to get clear, especially if you're kind of new with it. That's what I wanted to say. The The support uh, does not end when you go home, you know, and that's another thing. That's what I like to do with the retreats that I organized in the Sacred Valley and Salterra is the same way. They keep in touch with people. They check in. They help people weeks, months, sometimes six months or a year after they've been there. They provide a touchstone. You can go back. You can always contact them and and share what's happening. And I think that's the right that's the right approach to say that's good. basically yeah. you know, once you're in the family, you're in the family. And you know uh, they they support people uh, even beyond. They also did a they created an interesting booklet which I have not seen other uh, retreat centers do. It, they call it. The Hero's Journal, <laughs> which is kind of a pun on the hero's journey, but but it's it's a it's like a workbook. You know, it helps people. It can be used as a journal, but there are just different exercises, meditations, and things like that to think about. Kind of help people get their arms around this experience because these are transformative, life changing experiences. So. This is just another tool to help people integrate these experiences and not just 
I went to Costa Rica. I had a great drug trip, and now I'm back in my cubicle. And so what? You know, yeah. people have to take some time to really integrate uh, what happens to them, and often make changes. And, and many people do make changes after after these uh, retreats. Yeah. What for you makes a great curandero? Makes a spectacular ceremony leader, someone who really can you know, hold the space in a certain way. I've sat with the worst and I've sat with the best. <laughs> I'm so and, sorry. Oh God. Yeah, well. It, Sitting with the worst is not a, not an enviable situation. I, I'm afraid I actually no, had I'm, the same. <laughs> <laughs> but when you've been doing this as, lo- as long as I have, you, you know, inevitably you're going to come upon some of the, some of the not so good ones, some of the ones that don't really have your best interests at heart. Fortunately, most of my experiences have been positive, and there's a gentleman I've been working with in the Sacred Valley for the last 12, no, since 2012. A wonderful guy, and he is he is the best, and one of the reasons he's the best is he's humble. You know, it, it, he listens to his medicine, and he realizes and says, I am not the shaman. I am not a shaman. I'm just a facilitator. The, te- the, the medicine itself is the teacher. My job is to clear the decks and make it possible for the person to interface directly with the teacher. And if you get in trouble, I know a few tricks. But he's not, you know, there's no ego about this man. That's what I love about him. You know, I totally agree with you in that. I've actually gotten to know him. We, I don't think we were allowed to say his name, so I'm not going to say his name. But he, he's a close friend of a close friend. And not through you, but through, I discovered it's the same guy we've been talking about. I was like, oh, you're that guy that Dennis McKenna's been talking about. He is wonderful and modest. But I'll tell you something. Yeah. Yeah. He knows stuff. He has had some extraordinary initiatory experiences that have opened yes. up a connection to spirit that is very mm-hmm. rare, actually, an extraordinarily rare engagement with these energies. And his understanding of it is very subtle. So the modesty yeah. comes from a powerful connection that's grounded in the reality of what he's actually working with. He sees and understands what he's working with. This is not a false modesty or a simple superficial modesty. And so so when you mention him, if you use him as an example of somebody who's serving the medicine, I immediately think, oh, yeah, right. He's one of the, I'd say, of the guys under 45 in the world that I'm aware of, one of a handful who I'd say you really can trust because, boy, he knows his shit. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, he's, he's, not, he's not full of himself at all. I mean, because he has had these experiences and they have in humbling and he realizes how difficult this is you know one of the one of the aspects of his life and, and the way is that to me is a sign of the authenticity of his role as a curandero is that this was not a voluntary thing you know these often i mean people are called to it and they they don't want to do it, you know. Yeah, it's a heavy, it's a heavy they're burden. Afraid in a way, and too. They're afraid, yeah. you know, and it's like, but they don't have a choice. Right. And uh, and this guy is like that, you know. He has had, so he's suffered 
you know, and he does suffer. And, uh, uh, you know, in part, it's the role of a curandero to take on everyone else's suffering. You can't be a good healer unless you've suffered yourself. You have to know what it is from the inside. And he does. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's just fantastic person not not that he's the only one there are others out there but very often um, because ayahuasca or psychedelics they're they're a spiritual technology a numinous technology they're powerful and the danger is that people who are attracted to power can be attracted to something like this and it becomes an ego an ego thing for them so then you get these curanderos that are, you know, not so good, who, you know, see it as a uh, as a path to dominance and, and this sort of thing. Anybody who tells you I'm a great shaman, I'm out of there. You know, totally. I run the other way. <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah. I, I have had that experience, too. And uh, somebody said, hey, man, I got back from Peru two years ago, and I've been doing this stuff for the last six months, and I am so good at this. You know, my radar goes off. In a heavy way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's the, yeah. This this it takes years. So this is no not a shortcut to anything. That's an important thing. I mean that that's one reason that I you know I do not feel the calling to be a curandero to actually pour the medicine and administer the medicine because I feel like I haven't. I've only been studied it for 30 years, you know? <laughs> I mean, that really says something. And it's something for people to hear. I mean, people need to understand this because there's, I, my sense is that there's a lot of misunderstanding around the role played by the, the person who serves ayahuasca in a ceremony, the curandero. In our materialist culture, it's hard for people to even get their head around the importance of having somebody play that role at all. It's just like, listen, man, I can get some ayahuasca. Let's drink it with my friends. Initially, until they've actually had that first experience, even having a server seems strange. But then, once you dive into what's going on in that space, in that plant medicine space, you recognize that there's a lot more in play than is available on the surface or available to somebody when even your first dozen, two dozen ceremonies, you're not seeing it that the person who's leading the ceremony should have had profound initiatory experience that will enable them not only to see what's going on, but then to work with it in a situation where things maybe not are, going, are not going well for somebody in the circle. Over the years, how did you learn who you wanted to work with in that way? There's no process for it, really. You just, I mean, you you pays your money and it takes your choice, you know? And, and I guess that's why you never know if you're if you're sitting with someone that you haven't drunk with before. I mean, of course, you want to suss them out as much as possible before you get into that situation, but you don't always make the right choices. So you know, it's it's there is no sure way to know until you've spent some time with the person, see how they do their ceremonies, but more importantly, see how they are when they're not on duty, you know, when they're not being a shaman, it's interesting to see the transformation that comes over this man when he's in the mode, you know, but you realize that's, that's not him in a way. He's channeling forces that, you know, create this ceremonial space. So 
my question is, it, I mean, is he a skilled shaman? Does he know ceremony? Does he know the medicine? That's important. The more important question is, what kind of a human being is he? Yeah. You know, does he have insight? Does he have compassion? Is he kind? Is he wise? Is he, you know, not playing games with people? Just like anybody else you might meet, you know, you want to see is what is the uh, what is the person behind the the persona? Totally. You know, when you yeah. when you talk about the power of plant medicine, I'm wondering if for you that's different than chemical psychedelics at this point, LSD or even synthesized DMT. Do you yeah. feel that there this is these are fundamentally different in 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 how they educate and connect to you? Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, yes and no, I'd have to say. They are different because they're synthetic. Some of them are like like psilocybin, for example, that's being used in the clinical trials. That's synthetic, but it's a natural product. I mean, it is molecularly the same as what what is in the mushrooms. I prefer plant medicines for a couple of reasons. One is you know what you're getting, you know, and, and with synthetics, you don't always know. There are so many designer drugs out there, that sort of thing. Somebody sells you Molly at a concert or a rave or something. It may be MDMA or it may not. There's really no way to tell. So there's an issue with identity. More importantly, I think it's plant medicines have a connection to these indigenous traditions, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. And I think you get a sense if you connect. So many people's experiences are about rediscovering and re reconnecting with nature. Well, if you've taken something from nature, in nature, you're more likely to have a profound experience than if you take something that mimics a natural molecule and you take in a hospital setting or you take in a clinical setting. Although... That's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. And so those are those are the things I think that, uh, I mean, uh, it's been interesting to watch as this clinical work has gone forward and now several organizations, MAPS and USONA and COMPASS in Europe, they're in the process of essentially trying to, I mean, psilocybin cannot be patented, but certain things about how it's prepared, and therapeutic protocols and all those things can be patented. These companies are trying to do that. And I have mixed feelings about that. You know, I, I think that you know, it, it's like it's totally ignoring the fact that these medicines have been used safely for thousands of years in a traditional context. Many thousands of years before the FDA existed to tell us what we can and cannot do. With yeah, and they'll exist many thousands of years after the FDA has gone away. That's exactly <laughs> right. So it's important to acknowledge that. And I think that, uh, I mean, I, I, I support the scientific research and the clinical work. This is trying to develop these medicines for specific disorders, mental disorders, mental disorders like depression, addiction, and that that sort of thing. But it's important to remember that these are also good for what Jesse has called the betterment of the well. In other words, you don't have to be sick to benefit from psychedelic experiences. 
I mean, on some degree, we're all sick. I mean, as as a culture, we're wounded, and we all have these wounds, which psychedelics can help to heal. But you don't have to have a clinical diagnosis of intractable depression, say, to benefit from them. You do have to have such a diagnosis if you want to get into one of these FDA-approved clinical trials. So I see a split happening. I see a dichotomy. You've got, on the one hand, the sort of the biomedical acceptance and development of psychedelics as medicine, and that's more or less completely ignoring and, and not even acknowledging the indigenous traditions, the medicines that are used within those traditions, and the, the wisdom of the people that you know, know how to use them. I mean, I think psychotherapists could stand to learn a thing or two from traditional healers. Oh, my God. Hugely, yeah. Like to see these things come together in some way. So, so I'm not sure how you approach that. Just imagine, for example, if the FDA approves psilocybin for clinical use, physicians are able to prescribe it, then that's great. Does that mean that if I want to walk into the woods behind my house and pick mushrooms and take them? Not that I could, because there are no mushrooms behind my house, but you get the idea. Shouldn't we have access to these natural medicines without any restriction or very light restrictions? That'll be the big question as the legal issues move forward. But what on the more esoteric side, does a, the psilocybin that's generated in a lab have the same connection to spirit or have the same plant spirit associated with it that the mushroom you pick in your backyard or that you grow in your closet does. What's your sense of that? There's a couple of things about that. I think it does. You know, I think synthetic psilocybin can give you more or less the same experiment experience that you get when you eat mushrooms with an important difference, which is what they sometimes call the entourage effect. There are other things in mushrooms that are similar to psilocybin, and those affect experience, things like baocysteine and norbaocysteine. These are analogs of psilocybin, and they may affect experience. Similarly with ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a mixture of really dozens of chemicals that have activity if you can combine DMT and synthetic beta-carbolines and, and create pharmawaska, it works, but it lacks the depth that actual plant-derived ayahuasca make, you know, brings to the table. But then the other thing that is important to note is essentially I think that, you know, I think that con- consciousness permeates nature at the most basic levels. Even electrons are conscious to a certain, in a certain way. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Whiteheadian on this. So that means molecules are conscious in a certain way, or molecules have a spiritual aspect to them. Matter itself is sacred. So I dodge the question by saying synthetic psilocybin still has this. It's still, in a way, infused with consciousness because all of matter is that's one way to feel that question. Sasha Shulgin used to talk about all the chemicals he made. He sometimes talked about their, their little drug souls, which I thought was a great phrase. Oh, that's sweet. Him, yeah. I mean, these were, 
things he created, and they were to him intelligent entities. To CB, they were his friends. I mean, Sasha's friends were his molecules, and each one had its own soul. I think there's truth to that. But do you feel a difference between the plant and the lab-generated psilocybin? The difference that you might experience, you're saying, is likely more a physiological and chemical difference between the actual compounds that you're taking in your body and is not necessarily something else. No, I think, I mean, you keep coming back to this. And what I'm, I, 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 and I know you want to dodge it. <laughs> you're very, I think you can have a profound psychedelic experience on a synthetic psychedelic. Oh, clearly. And I mean, it, people do. People yeah. have, I mean, we all have. I mean, that's, anybody right. who's listening right. to this has had that experience, I'm sure. But you in particular, I'm asking you because you have dedicated yeah. your life to plants. You're an yeah, well, ethnopharmacologist. I love chemistry and I actually do think that uh, you know, matter has a uh, divine element to it. And another thing I'd remind you People often overlook this, right? They say, well, synthetic drugs, you know, do not have that spiritual aspect, right? Uh, There's there's not that built into them. But remember, the synthetic drugs were all made by organic chemists who are spiritual beings, as we all are. So maybe that's where the spiritual aspect comes from. Yeah, so I think the debate is... In a way, not useful. I mean, LSD is a good example. LSD is a semi-synthetic drug. It's derived from ergot alkaloids. There are similar alkaloids in ergot and morning glories, but there is no LSD in nature as far as anyone knows, except that it was made by an all-natural organic chemist, right? But mm-hmm. So it is in nature, LSD is, but it doesn't occur in any plant you know, or animal, does that, it doesn't really matter. I mean, LSD is like the archetypal psychedelic. I mean, it's almost in some Empyrean realm of the archetypes in some ways. So maybe it's even superior to anything natural. I don't know. I'm babbling, actually. (laughs) Trying desperately to escape the features <laughs> you're trying to put around me. <laughs> no, all good. Was your first serious spiritual mystical experience on psychedelics? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I suppose you'd have to say so. You know, if I discount my uh, a lot of my experiences when I was much, much younger, I had a very active imagination. My brother left home quite early. He went to California to finish high school. I'm four years younger than him. So in a lot of many parts of my life, I've been an only child and an only, you know, and when he was in school, I, before I started school. So I spent a lot of time alone. I had a very active dream life. And uh, like many young children do, I had a whole bunch of imaginary friends. I think this is totally normal. So I had a very rich, rich spiritual life. I wouldn't call it mystical, or at least that's not the word I would have used uh, at the time. My my dream life was like adventures with my 
imaginary friends. At the same time, I was a good Dogen during this period. I was a good Catholic and uh, believed that up and up much of that and, until I reached the point when I realized this this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. I mean, like, around twelve or thirteen, people uh, begin to wonder, and I was I was one of those, you know. But until then, I pretty much accepted the the liturgy and and you know the whole story. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So then you had a, a deep curiosity. I mean, I've seen in your book, The Brotherhood of Screaming Abyss, you talk about how you and, and Terrence were exploring these. Well, yeah, I, I did. Well, here, here's the thing. Uh, yeah, we were, we were so close and we were, we were so together in a lot of our interests, primarily because Terrence was four years older than I. And we got through that period of our lives where we were sibling rivals and fighting all the time. We got past all that, and then we realized, hey, we're both pretty cool. We have different interests, and, you know, they are complementary. So Terrence, you know, led the way just by virtue of being older, but I was happy to tag along. And then and, and one of the things that contributed to sort of our getting over this sibling rivalry was that at a certain point in our lives, Terrence began to understand that I was not just the pesky little brother. You know, I had stuff going on. And what I had going on back in those days, junior high school, early high school, was I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And I was preoccupied with cosmology. You know, the big questions, where did we come from? What is the universe about? All of those perennial philosophical questions that really have probably no answer I was preoccupied with all this early on, you know, and uh, read Plato and a lot of the Greek philosophers. And I was, you know, so I was into this stuff. This was long before I had any exposure to uh, to a psychedelic, but I was interested in the ultimate questions. And, you know, and, and that persists. I, I didn't become an astrophysicist in part because I'm so poor at math and it just seemed like I would never be able to. So I decided to go into biology, <laughs> which is not easier, but different. And then, of course, I discovered plants and had, you know, these experiences and really didn't look back. I haven't lost my interest in astrophysics and cosmology and all of these things, but it's a hobby, not a profession. So you were searching for something. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. when you got introduced to psychedelics, from what I, you know, just from talking to you and from what I've read, clearly you felt there was an opening to some answers or at least better questions, right? Uh, and then you went 
you went down to South America with your brother in that epic trip to La Chorera, which was, you know, Terrence wrote about it in True Hallucinations. You wrote about it in The Brotherhood of Screaming Abyss. You refer to it a bunch, central to the Invisible Landscape book. That whole experience got you deep in a lot of stuff. Yes, well, yes. I mean, we we went to South America, as I say many times in these talks and so on, it was DMT that got our attention. We were, you know, Terrence was in Berkeley going to school, and this was 68, 69. I went out there in 67, the summer of love. So we were in the middle of what you could call the psychedelic revolution or whatever. LSD was the medicine of the day, the drug of choice. DMT was out there. It was very rare, but Terrence was able to find it. And, you know, he was good at working the matrix. So when DMT came onto our radar, we thought that this is really something the different order of magnitude. This is not just a drug. This is something beyond a drug. What what gave you that impression? What was it for you? It's just its ability to essentially completely replace this reality with a different reality. You know, and it and it really does seem to be a different place. And at the time our mindset was uh, you know, we were steeped in science fiction. So it wasn't a spiritual thing for us. It was more that maybe this is actually a portal to another dimension or something like that. And what motivated us to go to South America, the problem with DMT is it only lasts 10 or 15 minutes. So you scarcely arrive before it begins to fade away. And we thought if we could find an orally active form of DMT, it would last longer, very naive idea, essentially accurate, but we thought if we could find an orally active form of DMT, we can spend more time in that space, and, you know, we did think of it as a space, and look around and see what is going on. So that was the, uh, you know, naive assumption that led us to go to South America. You had, the, you, you, you had the sense that if you slowed it down, those, the machine elves, the machine elves that are, that are zipping by might stop and chat, you could actually have a conversation. Was that, I mean, that was part of the motivation? That was part of the motivation, yeah. And at this time in 71, we didn't really, uh, ethnobotanists were just beginning to understand that uh, ayahuasca is an orally active form of DMT, that they didn't realize the role of the admixture plants and all that. So that came about the same time Schulte's graduate students were working this out. But we stumbled on a paper by Schultes called Varola as an Orally Active Hallucinogen. It may as well have been written in neon lights. I mean, like the title of the paper in the Harvard Botanical Museum list was like, that's it. This is the secret. This is what we have to go after. What were you like? You were cruising through libraries looking for papers about, about DMT? Yeah, yeah. We've, yeah, we've been researching this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. Cruising libraries and the Harvard Botanical Museum leaflet, which is was like Schulte's house organ, right? He was the director of the Botanical Museum, so he could publish whatever he wanted in that, and he did. And this, this thing 
surfaced, came on our radar. And that's why we went to La Chirera, because it was the Witoto Indians who had this, this preparation called ukuhe. It was an orally active preparation made from varola. And varola is a genus of trees, actually, in the nutmeg family. This sap is full of DMT, 5-epoxy DMT, and these other things. And in most of the Amazon, many parts of the Amazon, they're used as snuffs, right? The sap is extracted and powdered, boiled down, powdered, and taken as a snuff. That gets around the whole MAO inhibition thing. Well, these folks didn't do that. They made a paste out of it. The Witoto made a paste out of it, which they took by mouth, said to be very powerful. And La Chirera was the ancestral home of the Witoto. So that's that's why we went to La Chirera. Right, but you actually never, did you ever do the paste? Because you did the... Well, yeah, yeah, well, yes, definitely. Ten years later, later. when we went to La Chirera... Yeah. When, we, when we went to La Chirera, our carefully <laughs> programmed quest for this material, this orally active form of DMT, which we called the secret, quickly went off track because when we went to La Chirera, we found the pastures had been cleared around this mission village. These white Cebu cattle had been brought in. And out of every cow pie were these huge clusters of psilocybicubensis, pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. Heaven! It's like it's like the flowers in Wizard of Oz, as far as you can see. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And, and so we started consuming those, and interesting things began to happen. And we sort of lost uh, our focus on looking for this ukuhe. I didn't find it until 10 years later. And, and 10 years later, I went back to Peru, this time as a graduate student. And part of my, my thesis was to compare the botany and chemistry and pharmacology of ukuhe, this incredibly obscure, orally active DMT-based plant preparation to ayahuasca, which is orally active plant-based preparation from completely different botanical sources. So that's what my thesis ended up becoming. And, and when I was down there in uh, 81, we went downriver from Iquitos and up another river called the Ampiyaku, the River of Poisons. Turns out the Witoto people were forcibly relocated from La Chirera and that part of Colombia to this area around the Ampiyaku in the early part of the 20th century as a result of the rubber boom and all that, the rubber industry which was happening at that time. It completely decimated their culture. I mean, when, when I went back to Peru in 81, we contacted people. We went to this new place on the Ampiyaku, which was where the Witoto were as the result of this diaspora. And we were able to get samples of it, but they basically didn't remember how to do it. Really? You know, it was like, Oh, God. Yeah. It was disappearing knowledge. Did you get enough of it to have an experience to tell? Yeah, we, we collected seven samples. And it was basically, I sort of remember my grandfather used to make this. I'm not sure exactly, but, you know, I'll give it a try. Pay me a little bit and I'll try to make it for you. And, and they did. And it was very interesting. Some of those things 
some of those samples had no tryptamines at all in them. Others had the tryptamines at varied levels. Um, one sample in particular, which was turned out to be the strongest sample because we we bioassayed all of these in the field, as any good ethnopharmacologist would, right? And the only one that had a, any kind of strong effect on me was, was one preparation, which turned out to have really 5-methoxy-DMT, very high amounts and not a whole lot else. And when I took it at the time, I said to myself, I said to Terrence, I said, this is a lot like 5-methoxy-DMT. It reminds me of, of that more than DMT. And when we got the sample back to the lab, or when I got it back months later, did the analysis, show enough, that was the only tryptamine in, in this particular sample was 5-methoxy. You nailed it. Yes. Yeah. So one thing we learned uh, from La Chirera, searching for this perfect orally active form of DMT, is that psilocybin is actually the perfect orally active form of DMT. Psilocybin is converted to psilocin in, in the body. Psilocin is what interacts with the receptors. And molecularly, it's almost identical to DMT. It's just different enough that it's orally active. It doesn't require an MAO inhibitor. It is really the ideal orally active form of DMT. So when we went to La Terrera, we found the secret. We just didn't know it was the secret. It was a better secret than the one we were looking for. And when we started to take it at La Terrera on a regular basis and at high doses, you know, it quickly made it clear pretty much this is the secret, guys. Pay attention. This is what you came for. And, you know, the rest is history or, or myth or whatever you want to call it. You know, all that is recounted in the chronicles of Terence and Terry and Denny, you know. But, but that was it, and I, I think that's true. I think that uh, psilocybin, it's a remarkable compound in a lot of ways because it's non-toxic. You can have profound psychedelic experiences on it. If you, if you up the dose, it can be given to people who are not well, people who are sick with cancer and that sort of thing but because it's so well tolerated by the body it, it you know they, they can take it and it's all there you know uh, i mean if you can spend time in that state at high doses i think you can spend time in the you know in the dmt world in in what i call the tryptamine dimension it's almost identical to dmt at very high doses which is one reason i'm sort of puzzled uh, in some ways, you may have heard of these different groups that are talking about using DMT in, in a catheter and continuous infusion so that you can spend a lot of time in this state. There are a couple of groups, one in the UK and one in the States that's planning to do this work. They're calling it DMTX. Have you heard about this? I have heard a little bit about this. Well, there's a, there's a group that wanted to do these controlled experiments. Hopefully they'll be controlled. Rick Strassman is one of the people that's that's planning this. I'm, I mean, I'm always in favor of something that might yield new information, you know, but I also think this could be a dangerous thing to do. And I'm not sure it's necessary because if you want a prolonged 
DMT experience, take a lot of mushrooms. You will you will get that. It is different, but uh, not that different. Well, it's interesting because when you say that it's the same experience to take mushrooms as it would be to take just, quote-unquote, straight DMT, if you take enough and if you enter the DMT space, which I assume when you were in La Chirera, you entered for, what, 17 days, right? A week without sleep or more, Right. That is, some, that is something that happened after we took all these mushrooms and, and we triggered something. I mean, it's not typical. You can't, it, it, it's not like we were on in a psilocybin uh, altered state of consciousness for 17 days. We were on in an altered state of consciousness that was triggered by it, but it was, you know, we'd left the psilocybin uh, way behind by that point. And, I don't know what we were making our own own uh, neurotransmitters or or whatever, but a high dose of psilocybin, you know, as Terence used to say, five dried grams, which he used to say was the heroic dose. Well, now I know there are people that go much higher than that. But set and setting is important, and in the proper set and setting, which again he used to say. Total darkness is is the best way to do this, and I think he has a point. You know, to try to you know sort of block off all these external distractions and just go deep, go very deep, and pay attention to what's going on in the inner landscape. That's why the use of eye shades and, and these sorts of things are, you know, a good idea. So when people are talking about wanting to have that that intense DMT experience. I wonder mm-hmm. if they're looking for something similar to what may have happened to you all in La Chirera, in the sense that when the DMT thing happens fast, seven minutes, mm-hmm. and you get that sense of, is that an entity? Is there something there? What is that guy? Who is that yep. coming? Yeah, but you can get there on psilocybin. I mean, there are entities on psilocybin, for sure and ayahuasca, I mean, all these things. There is a whole menagerie of entities in these tryptamine dimensions, and it's like the different substances are kind of different doorways into the same place, I think. But it is a, if you think of it as a place, these are different portals into that place, but basically it's the same place. And as you know probably better than I do, when, when you're talking to people from the Amazonian lineages, there are they're aware of a, a wide range of different types of beings that can make themselves available, that can come through, you know, working with that medicine. And it's, it's not necessarily only a science fiction kind of experience. It can be actually a deep connection to nature. It can be a deep connection to some, you know, light, God-like experience. It can also be a way of revealing darker deeper, nasty sorts of beings and uh, that, that are coming to get your attention or that are already with you that you weren't aware were there. And suddenly you look around like, oh, I didn't know I was yeah. carrying that. And you, you have to be careful also. Uh, you know, there are these entities out there and, you know, you may think they're coming to get you. You know, when the anaconda comes for you, don't run away. Chances are... It may look scary, but it has something to teach, you know, so you should pay attention. You shouldn't try to suppress the fear and actually jump into it, you know, embrace it in some ways. It's not always science fiction. 
uh, I mean, it can be very traditional. These entities can can show up. While we're on this subject, I think I should take this moment to to plug a couple of events. One of them is at the Assemblage on the 27th. In New York, yeah. It's the launch of this book, EMT Dialogues, Encounters with the Spirit Molecule. It's the proceedings of a private conference that happened at Tiringham in 1920. That was the first time I went to Tiringham. And this is the this book is the proceedings of that conference. And then again, on Saturday, the 29th, there'll be a similar launching at Cosm, at Chapel of the Sacred Mirrors and Alex Gray's place in north of the city. So those two events are happening. I, if you look at my Facebook page, you can find out about them. Again, I'll send you all the links for this uh, when we get off here. I'll send you the relevant links. But those two events for people uh, that are interested in this question about the DMT entities, these seemingly intelligent autonomous entities that you encounter on DMT and in other tryptamine states, that's what this book is about. And it's very interesting conversations. Yeah, this, these are the proceedings of an event that took place in Tiringham, which is a, I guess exactly. it's like a castle outside of London, about an hour outside of London. Um, that's right. Yeah, in a, and in, that, that's, that's the same place I organized this conference last summer, ESPD 50, uh, which was, uh, you know, a different thing. It was an ethno-botanical conference, ethno-pharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs, 50th anniversary and you can look at that website so my first visit to Tiringham was in 2015 when they when I was invited to this private conference and you know some pretty high level people were there Graham Hancock was there uh, Rupert Sheldrake Eric Davis Jeremy Narby etc etc and I was there too and the book is a collection of the presentations and the conversations that took place at that conference That's right. Very interesting exploration about DMT entities. Have you read it? I'm holding the book in my hand as we speak. All right. Oh, great. And I recommend <laughs> it. Before you came to the conference, how was the conversation described to you? What did you anticipate was going to be happening there? Because this is not the kind of discussion that you see happening very often. No. Well, um, I didn't know. I didn't really know what to expect. I was invited to participate in this conference at Tiringham, so that was a huge incentive was to to visit Tiringham. And then, you know, I looked at the other people that were invited to this to this conference. Obviously, many of them I already knew, and just an interesting bunch of people. Interesting topic. So, what's not to like? You know, I. I had the opportunity to go. As it turned out, I was actually uh, on the way to the UK anyway at the same time for a different conference. So, you know, it was easy enough to uh, come a few days early and, and go to this conference. I'm very glad I, I did. And the book is very interesting. It does not resolve the question of what are these things, these DMT entities or these beings, apparently. But I think that's a pretty tough question to actually nail down. 
you know, I mean, the question is, this fabrication? Is this, are these products of the imagination or something that comes from somewhere else and that, you know, is out there somewhere? We have to be very careful how we use these common terms, you know, when we're thinking about this. Are the beings out there somewhere? Well, what do you mean by out there? <laughs> you know, and where is there as opposed to here? And, you know, because one thing psychedelics teach us is there is no difference between the inside and the outside. You know, it's all one, right? Isn't that, the, isn't that one of the chief take-home lessons? It's all one. So dualism and the impression of separation, you know, are loaded terms, you know. So how do you prove that DMT entities are real, right? Well, okay. What do you mean by real? (laughs) (laughs) The question I have around this and looking at the book and talking to the folks who organized the conference and subsequent conferences around the same topic about DMT and entities is why do you want to limit it to DMT? In the Amazon, the shamanic practitioners that you know who have been deeply trained in their lineages encounter entities with or without ayahuasca that is to say spirits appear and there are all kinds of different spiritual presences that you can through different mystical practices connect to and they can be of nature they can be of material they can be more connected to you know large forces like the ocean or you know mountains they are also little spirit kind of weird, tiny entities that can, you know, pop up that are more like little fairies and leprechauns. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that, you know, spiritual energy can manifest as entities, as beings, including, for some people, uh, God, okay, or, or various archangels, and then all those hierarchies when you start to get into the Rudolf Steiner way of seeing things. The, yeah. You know, the, the, the theosophists. I think you make a very good point. I think you make a good point in that, number one, the spiritual realm or these dimensions, whatever these things are, are populated with all kinds of entities, as you say, and you don't have to get to them through drugs. And But there seem to be a certain kinds of entities associated with certain kinds of drugs. I mean, DMT will reliably, for most people, many people, put you in a space where there do appear to be non-human intelligences that are there that you encounter who are very concerned to communicate with you. They have things they want to tell you, to teach you. That's the DMT slice. There are other slices of these dimensions, the ones that might come to you through Wachuma, the, the San Pedro cactus, for example or things like Datura, Toei. So yeah, there is a whole realm of these entities. I mean, the question that comes up, are these entities real? Are these experiences real? You can, you can say definitely they are real in the sense that we experience them. You know, anything we experience is real. Then we can get into the conversation, well, is it real because you imagined it? Is it real because it came outside? You know, the famous UFO researcher, J. Allen Hynek, 
worked on you know UFOs for many years, and someone asked, "So are UFOs real?" You know, and they said, "I don't know if UFOs are real, but I can tell you a hundred percent certainty, UFO experiences are definitely real." It's an important distinction because the matter that we have to work with, the data that we have to work with, is simply the data of our subjective experience. You know, and there really is nothing beyond that. If you think about it, whether you're stoned or straight, there's nothing beyond it. We live in this hallucination that our brains confabulate and create. That's the what I sometimes call the uh, the reality hallucination. Other people call it the default mode network. There are other ways of describing it, but <clears throat> that's the data that we have: is our here and now experience of being. Everything else is imagination, memory, confabulation, you know, all of those things. Are you comfortable with that ambiguity? No, I don't have a choice about it. <laughs> I have to be comfortable with it. <laughs> you know, because I, I doubt there well, is a definitive way to nail this down. How would you go about proving that the entities are real? Well, I think for certain people, let's say, let's talk about the, the, the current era we were discussing yeah. before, that guy. When he's doing a certain kind of ceremony, he's connecting to something beyond himself. Even you said he's leading the ceremony. He's not that present. Something else is coming right. through him. For him, that's a reliable experience where he is essentially surrendering himself to an energetic force that he can feel physically in his body. It's unmistakable as a physical experience. And so in his heart, he knows it's true. It's not a hallucination. It's not a projection. It's a way for him to actually ground himself so he can hold the space necessary to do what he needs to do in the ceremony and also to do what he needs to do in order to learn how to navigate better and better that energetic space that becomes available as you grow and expand doing this right, kind of work. Right. So for him, in this experience, the entities are real. And he interacts with them, and he or she interacts with them, learns things from them, uses the energy that they transmit, and sometimes their, their energy, their, their knowledge, and their power for, for healing. So for him, it's real. How does he prove to someone else that it's real? So I'm there. I'm a you know materialist, scientist post-technological 20th century person, and I'm just sort of saying, so why should I believe in these things? How can you prove to me that these are real? And of course, the shaman is going to say, well, if you want to know, you have to take ayahuasca. And so then you take ayahuasca, and sure enough, there are these entities that you encounter, but are they the same ones he encounters? I have no idea. You know, or are they my entities? It's tricky because you know, what you're attempting to do is to define an aspect of reality that doesn't really want to be nailed down when we don't really even have an idea what reality is, right? I mean, what we're living in is a, is a construct of the mind. Well, physics tells us that reality, external reality, if you want to even grant that that exists, doesn't look anything like what we call consensus reality. Well, that's true. Well, certainly, you know, the limitations of our senses, 
it creates a certain kind of illusion about how, quote-unquote, reality yeah. works. But in a ceremony, let's just to step back. I hate to be too stuck on this point, but I, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about it. I've actually wanted to talk about this with you for a while. When that guy who's leading the ceremony is holding a certain kind of energetic spiritual being, and he's able to then come to you and see something that's happening in you because of that being, where he's able then to surface that thing in you, which may be light that's waiting to be released in your heart, or maybe it's something that's right. dark that you've been carrying that you're not aware you're carrying, but he can help to extract it. Mm-hmm. Then there's an intersubjective thing that's going on between the two of you, right? Right. That's more than just you having your entity like idea of what this stuff is and his having him having his idea. There's something where he's working in a constructive way with that energy, with that spiritual entity, because that's how he's experiencing it. And you're responding to that. There's a healing process that may be taking place that is, frankly, taking yeah. place. He is manifesting this energy. And I can feel the energy in some ways through whatever he's doing. He may feel that he is channeling some entity and that entity is giving him this power, this insight, that it's not him, that he is really just sort of the agent, uh, you know, working on behalf of the entity. But uh, So that's his model for it, right? There is an entity, I have an alliance with it, it helps me in healing. That could be a total construct. I mean, that's his construct, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I mean, this energy may come from some higher part of the self. It may just be another part of the self that is normally not accessible, you know, to uh, in ordinary states of consciousness. And when it does manifest, it manifests as though it were a separate entity, but really it's not. It's a part of himself that's presenting as though it were a separate entity. So, you know, you can see how you can get into, you know, the uh, epistemological weeds here, if you want to put it this way, because we're confined to language, you know, and language is inherently limited when we try and talk about these. Yeah, I think a lot of it is culturally determined. That is, you know, that there's different ways, different societies, different cultures frame that experience. Yeah, you can't get away from these cultural filters, these biological filters. All of these things are going to affect the nature of, of your experience. You know, back in the day when Terence was, uh, you know, growing mushrooms, taking mushrooms regularly at high doses, I himself... You know, he would get into dialogues with the, you know, with these entities that, that you do encounter. And he would, he would, he would try to trick you in an effort to determine if it was real. He would say, so tell me something that I can't possibly know, you know, and if you tell me that, then I'll believe in you. You know, I mean, that will prove that you're real because I couldn't possibly know it. Playing these sort of mind games with himself. Of course, the entity never, <laughs> never came through, you know, so it was not. And how would you know once he's told you that, once this entity has told you this, how would you know that you couldn't possibly know it? Because now you do know it. Well, yeah, 
Okay. I mean, on the one hand, I understand that the challenge that Terrence had. On the other hand, we have a friend named Bruce Damer. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. But Bruce effectively downloaded the origin of life story from what he believes, what he has experienced as a, essentially a DMT entity, Mother Ayahuasca, mm-hmm. right? Which became the cover story on Scientific American a year ago about the origin of life. Oh, yes, our friend Bruce. Okay, that Bruce, yeah. That Bruce, yes. So there are times where connection to that spiritual stuff, those entities, using entities in a kind of generic way, right, can actually provide information you don't normally have. And then it's sort of, you know, then it opens up all these questions about psychic phenomena, right. which are real, ways that people can, you know, pick up information about other people that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, but something is allowing them to right. do that. Some of that, my sense from my own experience when that does happen for me, which is limited, but it's happened, is that there are spiritual entities that are allowing the access, and then when they decide they don't want to allow the access anymore, they cut it off. But Bruce is a great example at a high level. And I'm mentioning him also because, you know, I think he's been fairly public about this. He's been on various podcasts and all that. Let's unpack this a little bit, okay? Okay, okay, sure. You have to know Bruce, our friend Bruce, you know, who is a brilliant man and has incredible ideas, like his origin of life scenario is, you know, the best, I think, understanding of what really probably went on that I've seen so far. But he's probably shared with you that all of his life, he, before he ever encountered psychedelics, he had these spontaneous internal processes, mystical experiences, call them, or, or, you know, endogenous psychedelic experiences, experiences were very much like DMT, as he described it to me. But this was before he had ever encountered DMT. And this is something I don't understand because, you know, like I'm, you know, I, I'm a liberal arts guy. I don't understand any of this. But he has says that he's been able, he was able to release DMT endogenously without taking it, that he was able to, to, to get his body to have a DMT experience without actually taking something from outside, like so, the drinking anything. Maybe yes and maybe no. You know, that's the model he's created for himself. That's the, that's the model. He, he has these spontaneous experiences. They're like DMT. Ergo, I can cause DMT to be released, and, and that's the cause of this. Maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, you could, you, there, there are different, I mean, I don't doubt that he has the experiences. I do doubt that it was due to the endogenous release of DMT. I mean, this is a whole area of controversy that I, uh, I don't think we have time to go into. But what I do want to say is, so, so he, he has these psychedelic experiences, either from taking psychedelics, DMT, or he has them spontaneously. He comes up with this incredible idea about the origin of life. It's interesting to me that he says, I got this idea from this avatar, from this wise entity. 
you know, why doesn't he step up and own it and say, this is my idea. I thought of this. This is my idea. Is that an arrogant thing to do? Well, maybe for the same reason that our other friend who leads ceremony says it's not him leading the ceremony, that there's something else that's there that's yep. coming through. Maybe it's a similar But again, experience. the same thing the same thing applies. He is working within the model, the phenomenological model that works for him, that creates this context. So he's he's got his model for what happened. Okay, I'm in touch with a with an external being that channels its its energy through me. Bruce is kind of the same way. I'm not saying that it's wrong. Maybe it's correct, but I think we have to recognize that it's a model. It's a story you tell yourself about what's happening. It seems to reflect what's happening. That does not mean that it's true. I don't know that there is such a thing as truth. You know, as, as a famous politician once said, truth isn't true. Well, I yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it, it may be that Donald Trump is president, but I'm not sure it's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But it's important to think about how we think of these things. You know, how do I deal with this? You asked me, I think we, the tangent we got off on is, you know, are you comfortable with the ambiguity of this? And the answer is, yes, I am. I have to be. For one thing, there's no choice. On the other hand, it's kind of liberating. I mean, I think it was Whitehead who said that the suspended judgment is the ultimate scientific stance. And that is basically saying we don't have enough data, we can't say anything about it for sure. You know, we're, there isn't enough data to nail it down. But that's very liberating in a way because it means there's more to be learned and eventually we may learn enough that we can nail it down, but we're not there yet. So we're in this sort of situation of epistemological freedom, in a sense. Nobody knows what is going on, so we're free to speculate. You know, And in some ways, that's more exciting than if we were able to say, yeah, we, we figured all this out. You know, We've got it nailed down. Here's what it is. In some ways, it takes away the numinosity of the experience if you do that. No, I totally understand that. But what excites me about exploring it in more detail to try to understand more closely what might, quote-unquote, really be going on is how it's part of a, of a new consideration in the West of what it is to be a human being and how we're connected to each other and to the planet and that it's opening up a new cultural paradigm that's post-materialist that recognizes the luminosity of being as an intrinsic part of what it is to be yep, alive. Yep. And that there's a, a way for us, by looking at all of these different global mystery school lineages, how we're able to, to now see them all, so many, the secrets of 100 years ago and for going back for millennia, are now out. There ain't no more secrets like that anymore. You can really see... And understand, if you study, if you look around, what it is that different mystical traditions were talking about and start to compare them and, and have those experiences. I can go to the Amazon. I'm a New York Jew. I can go to the Amazon. I can go to Gabon and, and Dewey Boga. I can 
become a, a Tibetan Buddhist and, you know, live for 10 years in, a, in Nepal, in a monastery. All those things are now available. And it, this has never happened before really in history until the last, what, 50 years it's been coming on. And so once we start to see and compare what those experiences are and what they're about, it's shifting our whole understanding of who we are, how we're connected, and the importance of love, and the importance of, of caring for one another and for the planet. And that's the, the new story that's emerging. And so, that's, and, then, and so it's not as if I feel like it's necessary for it to be you know, all pinned down that's so what, what is real and what's not real, as much as you know, what is the, the emerging intersubjectivity that'll help us tell this story better so that people then have a clearer path for their own process of awakening and connection. Right, exactly. I, yeah, I think that, you know, what's happening now in terms of, you know, this sort of awakening to the fact that what we formerly thought of as reality, consensus reality, is a very circumscribed thing. It's, it's actually a small slice of the bigger reality that's out there. And so I think this is a very healthy thing because science tends to be uh, reductionist. A reductionism doesn't work anymore. It tends to dismiss all these things. And that's not good. That's, that's not its job because these are, whatever they are, they're real experiences. Let's start there and try to figure out what they are. So I think that this, again, encourages humility, and humility is a good thing, and science could use a lot more of it to be ready to admit the limitations of its knowledge. This is always the lesson I get from ayahuasca, very much every time. It says, remember how little you know. Remember how little you know about the way things are. You know, there's no reason for arrogance or egotism because you only have a tiny slice of what's really going on. So ponder that, try to understand it, try to increase your your understanding. Don't assume you have it figured out because you probably never will. Nonetheless, you can attempt to enlarge your understanding knowing that, you know, if, if understanding is an expanding sphere between the known and the unknown, the darkness outside the sphere is always going to be greater than whatever's, whatever you illuminated within the sphere that's just the nature of things and i don't think it's a reason to be depressed i think it's a reason to be joyous in some way because it means that learning never stops we can push the limits of our understanding as far as we want and we'll never you know we'll never reach uh, i don't think we'll ever reach a place of total understanding you know, and this is the problem with religions, you know, they don't want to admit this. They have a dogma, they have a set of doctrines and dogma, and they're pretty much waving the flag and saying, oh, you know, come follow us. You know, we, we, we have it figured out a thousand years ago. Just join us, you know, and believe and have faith and you can turn off your mind. You don't have to think about it anymore because here's the answers. This is not good. <laughs> totally, Dennis. I totally, totally agree. It's not a good thing. No, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. 
Before we go, though, I have one last question I have to ask you. Not just for me. I'm doing this for, some, for other people who would like to know. What was it like to trip with your brother? What was it like to trip with my brother? Yes, because, you know, some people, when they take psychedelics, they get into a certain kind of a way of behaving, right? Did he talk all the time? Did he get really deep and personal with, one, with somebody and go deep, you know, like get into a conversation? Did he go off on his own? I'm curious what it was like to actually be in a psychedelic space with your brother. Well, I don't, you know, I don't think it was that different than taking it with anyone else. I mean, there, I mean, except that it was my brother, you know, so he's a brilliant guy and he always had interesting things to say. But there were periods, you know, when we were taking them and, you know, we're not communicating, we're having our own individual experiences. And then periods, you know, when we would be talking, maybe discussing what was happening or what had happened, sharing those ideas. Very often when we trip together, and I don't know if this was because we're, we were brothers, but we often seem to share the same experiences. You know, we could, we could recall an episode and it was like, you know, I saw this entity and it looked like this and so on. And I, yeah, I saw that too, you know, so, so that goes on. It was great to trip with him. I mean, I wish we'd done it more often, you know, but in, in later years, we never really had the chance to do that. But uh, it was it was it was good to trip with him. Great. Thank you very much, Dennis. All right. Thank you very much. Are there beings out there? beyond the self, influencing how we think, what we feel, how we notice. If there are entities with that sort of access to what we think of as our core self, how do you then make a distinction between the self and that thing that's other? Or are these dividing lines just something that humans fool ourselves into thinking are even possible? Psychedelic consciousness provides a way of staying in that playful zone where the many aspects of ourselves can dance together, where you can be open to a range of possibilities about what's going on without having to choose definitively any particular one. What matters is being able to hold that state of flow in a way that keeps you available to love. To learn more about Dennis McKenna and his many projects and events, check out the events page on his Facebook. That's where you will find all the things that he's got coming up on his frighteningly packed schedule. I want to thank Dennis for being a guest here on the Evolver podcast. And I want to thank you too for joining us. If you like what we're doing, please let your friends know. Share it on social media. Drop us a note at theevolver at evolver.net. And really important too, uh, if you can get around to it, drop a comment at iTunes. That does help us to reach more people. You can follow us on Instagram at the Evolver Podcast and also on Facebook at The Evolver Social Movement. And remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or the podcatcher of your choice. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Go check them out. 
That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.